I invite you to turn in God's Word to the book of Psalms uh, and to the 133rd chapter. When Shane asked if I would preach these first uh, two Sundays of the new year, there were two subjects, two biblical texts that immediately came to my mind. The first of those we looked at last week, the text being Ecclesiastes chapters 8 and 9, and the focus being how to walk wisely in a broken world. We looked last Sunday at how to expose the false idea of Christian karma, uh, and rather than living by, as Christians, uh, living by a formula and attempting to control everything uh, in our lives while ignoring the certainty of death and worshiping God's gifts instead of enjoying them, we talked about how to trust God with all of the uncertainties in life, how to, how to live in light of our certain death, and how to enjoy the gifts of God the way that He intended. This morning, I want us to look at a different passage and a different subject, but one that has been on my mind for a number of weeks and one that I also believe is important for us to consider as we move uh, as a church into 2020. The text is this particular psalm, Psalm 133, and the subject is this matter of unity, spiritual unity. Now, you'll notice there in your Bibles the superscription located before verse 1 that states, a song of ascents. Of David. And so we have this brief three verse song of ascents, which is one of 15 pilgrim psalms with that particular designation. 15 relatively short psalms purposefully grouped together and immediately following not only the longest psalm in the Psalter, but the longest chapter in Scripture, Psalm 119. So there's, there's Psalm 119, a, a, a psalm entirely devoted, devoted to the sufficiency and the glory of God's Word. And then you have Psalms 120 through 134, all grouped together and labeled with this same inscription, a song of ascents, which most believe were collected and organized in this way for singing by pilgrims making the journey to Jerusalem for the annual feasts. And Psalm 133 is one of these songs, written and intended to be sung by God's people in preparation for and along the way to a festival in the holy city, Uh, written to encourage, in this case, unity among God's people as they travel to Jerusalem to celebrate together. That theme is pretty clear as you read it. And let me do that for us. Psalm 133, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Again, a song of ascent of David, verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew 
of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Interestingly, both of the two final psalms of ascent begin with the same word, at least in the original text. It's a Hebrew word that the ESV here, the ESV translators have translated as behold. Uh, In Psalm 133 and then in Psalm 134, you'll notice they they render the same word as come. Uh, The King James Version, the New King James Version, uh, and the New American Standard all translate the word behold. Uh, The NIV in Psalm 134, for some reason, leaves it out completely. But it's used to get the, to sort of set the tone of the psalm. Because it's, it, it's, it's meant to sort of arrest us. It's meant to, to get, our, get our attention. It's, it's sort of an exclamation. Behold, or look at this. Uh, that's the design of this first term, to sort of arrest our attention and to direct our thoughts in a very focused way on whatever follows or whatever subject is being introduced. And that subject is given to us in the final word of the first verse, and we learn that this is a song about unity. So it's a brief psalm with a very uh, sort of a pointed, a very sharp focus. It's very simple, if you will, in its message, very simple in its structure. Uh, Verse 1 commends unity and true fellowship among brothers as precious and a great blessing. Verse 2 illustrates the blessing of unity with the imagery of anointing oil. Verse 3 illustrates the blessing of unity unity with an illustration of dew on the mountains. And we'll look at these one at a time. But first, let's consider the historical occasion of this psalm. We, we know with certainty who the author of this psalm was. It was David. Uh, there are three other psalms in this grouping of 15 that were penned by him, Psalms 122, 124, and Psalm 131. Uh, One of these 15 was written by uh, David's son uh, Solomon. The other 10 are anonymous. And so we know David was the author, and what we know about David's life, because we have so many details in the Old Testament, Give us uh, an idea about the context in which this psalm was written. A psalm that not only grabs our attention, but, but sounds like a, a sort of a sigh of relief, or a, you might say a prayer of thanksgiving, or a, a gentle plea to the brothers spoken of in verse 1, urging them to maintain the blessing of unity. It's like David is starting out saying, behold, look at this, here is an amazing thing, a blessing worth preserving, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's a song that seems to come from the heart of someone who has been earnestly longing for unity, someone who has suffered greatly because of the conflicts created by disunity and someone who is so grateful for the relief from his suffering now that unity has finally brought peace. And this whole psalm perfectly resolves the situation mentioned in the very first of these pilgrim psalms. In Psalm 
120, verse 6, says this, Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Now, since this psalm was penned by David, it's not very difficult, I think, to reason what season of his life may have produced this particular psalm or song or prayer. There is one moment in David's life where this psalm would best fit, and that is his coronation at Hebron as king of Israel, a time of celebration as peace and harmony settled over the nation, and David, the rightful king, was finally installed on the throne. Because the years leading up to that event are described in Scripture as anything but a season of peace. In fact, it was a time of tremendous division and turmoil. David, of course, was anointed to be king shortly after Samuel prophesied that Saul and his heirs would be removed. But David had had to endure years of banishment uh, and persecution from the hand of Saul because Saul was obviously not willing to relinquish the throne. In fact, Saul never did step down but continued to occupy the throne until he died. And even when Saul died, David did not immediately take the reins of leadership. There was a long power struggle in Israel, which led to a civil war and the kingdom being nearly torn in two. You can read all about this in First and Second Samuel, Saul's reign as king, ending in utter disgrace with him taking his own life in a losing battle with the Philistines, the whole battle turning into a bitter defeat for Israel's army. According to 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 6, it says, Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Now that would seem to have been the end of Saul's uh, dynasty. He was dead. His three eldest and most capable sons were all dead. The prophet Samuel had already anointed David as the new king, That was way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, several years before Saul's death, recorded in chapter 31. And so you might think David would finally be able to take his place on the throne. After all, it was rightfully his. And it was common knowledge that God had appointed David to be the next king. But that's not what happened. Actually, the transition from Saul to David led to bitter conflict where all but one of the tribes of Israel opposed David. And again, this wasn't David's first experience with turmoil. It wasn't his first experience with affliction and division. At times he had been on the run for his life. We read about that even in the Psalms. He had adversaries without. He had adversaries within And then there was Jonathan, his best friend, and one of the three sons of Saul who died on the same day as their father. But before that, for years, really, Saul's determination to kill David made it very difficult for David and Jonathan to enjoy any kind of fellowship or friendship, and that was a deep heartbreak to David, perhaps explaining why David was so sick of conflict and so eager to see unity in Israel. 
At any rate, shortly after Saul's death, a group of officials from the tribe of Judah came to David with the expectation of installing David as king. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4 says, And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. David, of course, was from the tribe of Judah, so these men were representatives from his own tribe. On the other hand, Saul had come from the line of Benjamin. And so this, this proposition to make David king ignited a violent rivalry between those two tribes. And it makes sense why. I mean, all the way back when Saul was initially appointed king over Israel, you can go, again go back to chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Samuel. It was the sinful desire of the people, you may remember, in their own words, to be like all the nations. And the kings of other nations had dynasties which meant that their own sons succeeded them on the throne when they died, and it didn't matter whether they were, were benevolent, good, or wicked, or evil. The, the dynasty had to be sort of kept together and intact because a long dynasty was perceived as evidence of that nation's power and stability. So amazingly, after Saul's death, the majority of Israel didn't want David... They wanted the eldest surviving son of Saul to be the next king, which was a very weak and incompetent man named Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth was 12 years older than David, but he was not a man who was really fit for spiritual leadership. And then there was Abner. Abner was the commander of Saul's army, and when Saul died, Abner, according to 2 Samuel chapter 3, says, Abner took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. And Ishbosheth probably would never have sought such an honor or a position on his own, but Abner used uh, Ishbosheth. In the end, you sort of get this from the broader context, but as a political pawn, and it was Abner that was clearly the one in charge. He obviously did not want to lose his influence and power as commander of the king's army and needed a kind of puppet king who would keep him in that place of importance. So Ishbosheth was the most sensible choice, a man with a, a credible claim to be heir. To Saul's legacy. And so we read in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, that Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. So all 11 other tribes remained loyal to the dynasty of Saul, Judah remained loyal to David. And the result was a bitter civil war. At first, Abner, who is now Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth's commander, so Abner and Joab, Joab was David's commander, they agree at one point to, to choose 12 champions from their respective armies and to have a contest among these 
select fighting men in place of having an all-out war. But 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 16 says, And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's, si- his opponent's side, so they fell down together. That is to say, all 24 men from both sides killed each other. And the contest immediately gave way to a bloody feud. Scripture says in verse 17, the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. The details of this civil war are disturbing, especially when you realize that that these are Israelites. These are uh, Israelites fighting their fellow Israelites, brothers against brothers. And you can read about it later for yourself in the early chapters of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 sums it up this way. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And then it gets, it gets really nasty. Ishbosheth accuses Abner of fornicating with one of Saul's concubines, and so Abner turns against Ishbosheth and tries to make peace with David. Joab, commander of David's army, assassinates Abner in revenge for, the, for that fact, for the fact that Abner had killed Joab's brother. And without Abner holding him up, Ishbosheth is too weak to maintain the appearance that he was the king. And so Scripture says in 2 Samuel chapter 4, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. A couple of wicked men in Ishbosheth's army then decided to try to bring themselves into favor with David by killing Ishbosheth. And so they slipped into Ishbosheth. His home, while the scripture says he was taking his noonday rest. Some of you may do that at some point today. Take your noonday rest, but these guys slip into his home while he's resting. And the text says that they stabbed him to death, beheaded him, and took his head to David, expecting to be rewarded for their treachery. Instead, David had them killed, their feet and their hands cut off. And then they were hanged, their corpses. And finally, with the death of the men who killed Ishbosheth, the civil war and all its ugliness suddenly ended completely. There was no man left in Israel who had a forbidden thirst for the throne and for kingly power. And 2 Samuel chapter 5 describes how all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, beginning in verse 1, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And so all all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. 
And David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. It sort of gives you an idea of how, how long this, this battle was going on in David's life. I mean, going all the way back to his initial uh, the initial selection of him by Samuel, all of the, 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 the stuff going on with Saul and Saul pursuing him and him, David having to navigate those things. And then even after Saul's death, for years having to deal with this ongoing conflict in his life. So David went on to establish the nation's capital in Jerusalem for the first time and to begin to build the region around Mount Zion into one of the world's great capital cities, still fighting wars against the Philistines and defending Israel against other foreign threats, but from the time he ascended the throne until his own son Absalom led a brief revolt, unity and peace reigned for the most part throughout Israel. So I think it's fair to say that our psalm, written by David, likely connects to that season in David's life when after decades of conflict and internal strife, he was able to bring together the 12 tribes of Israel into one restful and united and unified kingdom. Which makes what David says in Psalm 133 even more profound. So let's look at this in more detail. Let me suggest that, uh, that, that, was, that what we have here are three, I'll call them three inspired reflections on spiritual unity. Three inspired reflections on spiritual unity. And the first one is this, unity among God's people is a rich blessing. Unity among God's people is a rich blessing. Verse 1 again Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now let's think for a moment about why unity is, 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 is so beneficial, while unity is such a virtue, as well as what genuine unity looks like. Many people today, of course, have a totally twisted idea about what unity means and what, it, what it's supposed to accomplish. There is a, a true unity, right? And that is, that is the one that this particular psalm celebrates. But there's also a false version of unity, or you might say an artificial unity, that is actually harmful rather than beneficial. A true unity is a reflection of God Himself, right? Unity is exemplified... In God's very nature, right? We have one God, right? Our God is one in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, all of one substance, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. So we have Trinity and unity. In other words, God embodies unity, and that unity involves a perfect and absolute agreement. It's a spiritual union. And that spiritual union is expressly the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17, verse 21. He says that they, 
May, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you've given me, Jesus prayed, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. So the unity of the Godhead is, is the model for the unity that Christians are supposed to seek and to maintain. And true spiritual unity always, always, always involves true doctrine. In fact, just a few verses before Jesus prays for unity, he says in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Jerome once said, cursed be that peace which forsakes the truth. Uh, Anthony Burgess, he is a 17th century Puritan minister who, by the way, preached 145 sermons on Jesus' prayer in John 17. <laughs> 145 sermons on Jesus' prayer before his passion in John 17. And Anthony Burgess warned, quote, it is possible to paint over sinful confederacy in ways of sin as though this was the glorious unity commended by Christ. So at the very least, some shared commitment to truth must lie at the heart of what Jesus prayed for. Moreover, the unity Christ sought hinges on the spiritual union of all believers with him. Ephesians 5.30 says that we are members of his body. Romans 12 Verse 5 says, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So in that sense, Christ's prayer in John 17 has already been answered and is being answered as the church is being built up in that spiritual union that all true believers relish. And it's, and at its root, this unity is a shared belief in, a certain fund, in, in certain fundamental truths, and as we are being sanctified and perfected, our unity with one another is being perfected as well. It's also, also interesting to note that this perfect unity is one of the central promises of the new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 39, the Lord declares, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And when we are glorified, the unity that Christ prayed for will finally be absolutely perfect. And every true believer eagerly looks forward to that day. And so we wait for that and long for that, though we already enjoy a tremendous amount of unity with God's people right now, and we're always to be seeking a greater unity, which we gradually realize as we gain a greater understanding of God and His Word. Again, this is why we place such an emphasis on the necessity of sound and faithful teaching, because true unity is actually undermined not advanced by people who think we should set all of these concerns about sound doctrine aside. 
That is not a path to true unity. That is a recipe for chaos. It's a recipe for ultimately for division. We can't just decide to all get along. We can't just refuse to make truth uh, to, to not make truth an issue. To ignore the lies or the sinful stumbling blocks that obstruct peace. That's not unity. It's confusion. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14.33 that our God is not a God of confusion but peace. Again, the spiritual union and perfect agreement among the persons of the Godhead are the perfect example of true unity. And that means that agreement with the Word of God is an absolute essential. It's, It's the single most obvious fruit, I think, of true unity. So as Christians, we're we're to be driven by a love for the truth. Uh, We're to be driven by a love for Christ and a loyalty to Christ. We're to be driven by a profound love for our neighbor. Again, Ephesians 4 starts out really at that very point and goes on to describe all of the essential elements of Christian unity. Paul says, "...we pursue unity by walking in humility." and gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body, again, these are are theological truths, right? One body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, and one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we enjoy unity as brothers and sisters in Christ, even while we find it necessary to battle against the lies and the false doctrines and the beliefs of people who pretend to be Christians but are not in any way united with Christ. They actually represent a serious threat to true unity among our body if they try to exert influence on the fellowship of believers because they lack that vital connection to Christ. By the way, that image of simultaneously, that sort of, a, of simultaneous unity among the brethren and war against the false believers and teachers actually mirrors the situation in Israel, right? When David penned this psalm, while David was, David was celebrating, right? How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And while he was doing that, he was in the process of waging war against fierce foreign enemies who threatened the peace of Israel. Now, notice the two adjectives, modifiers there in verse 1, good and pleasant. Unity is both good and pleasant, and therefore it's one of the finest of all virtues, not only good for the soul, but pleasing to the heart. Unity is good because it reflects the very nature of God. It is virtuous, it is honorable, it is an expression of righteousness, which means that it's also an extreme wickedness to undermine unity. Proverbs 6, verse 19 says, This is one of the seven things that God hates with a holy hatred, one who sows discord among brothers. A few verses before that, Verses 12 to 14, it says this, A worthless person, a wicked man, goes on, without, uh, goes on with crooked speech, 
winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. In other words, someone who seems to think that there's something compelling about causing division must have a mind that is totally given over to evil and wickedness. Because Scripture consistently employs this kind of harsh language. Anyone who delights in setting brothers against one another is worthless and wicked. But conversely, we read in James 3.18, And a harvest, James says, of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So unity is honorable, it's noble, it's holy, it's good. More than that, it is pleasant, which means, first of all, that it's pleasing to God. He takes pleasure in it, He delights in it. But also, in a very practical way, unity is pleasant to those who experience it. You know this, I hope, in your own household. The joy, the exhilaration, the the pleasantness of dwelling in unity with your spouse or with your children, serving one another, loving one another, striving to have a home environment that is free from strife and, and sinful conflict. So it's a simple principle. Unity is pleasant. And on the other hand, living with conflict is unpleasant. Living with conflict is unpleasant. And Scripture highlights this repeatedly. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Verse 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. But he doesn't just single out bickering wives. Proverbs 22. It's, we all could be guilty of these things. 20, Proverbs 22, 24. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Proverbs 20, verse 3, It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Proverbs 17, verse 1, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. So the bottom line, a lack of unity makes everything unpleasant. But unity is a pleasant thing, pleasing to the heart, good for the soul, whether it's in a family, in a nation, or in a church. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is good and pleasant in every way. And so unity among God's people is a rich blessing. It's a rich blessing. Second, unity among God's people has a sanctifying influence. Unity among God's people has a sanctifying influence. In verse 2, we have this, this imagery that is very vivid, but, but again, bear in mind that the subject is still unity. He writes there, It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, if you're reading a different translation, it might, uh, it might speak of the oil running down to the hem of his garment. 
the Hebrew expression literally means going down to the mouth of his garment. So it suggests the idea of an opening in the garment. This the same Hebrew word was used to speak of both the lower and the upper opening of a garment. And so the text really isn't as specific as most of the translations we have make it. Some commentators think that this is a reference to the lower hem so that you would have the oil sort of uh, literally saturating the whole garment. Others say, no, this is speaking uh, of just the collar. Either way, it's a picture of the oil lavishly flowing down and being diffused over a, a long distance. And the idea both here and in verse 3 is to suggest that the liquid flows from the heights to the depths. And so I'm inclined to think that this imagery does picture the high priest being anointed literally from the head to his feet, which normally wasn't done. Priests were routinely anointed by just a sprinkling of oil, but this specifically mentions Aaron. And when the first tabernacle was inaugurated and Aaron was anointed... Leviticus 8 verse 12 says that after Moses had sprinkled some of the anointing oil on the altar and the utensils and the basin and the stand, that he then poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him, implying that a large amount of this special fragrant oil was used on that occasion. Uh, Moreover, the precious oil here in our psalm refers to something very specific and unique. Uh, It's the anointing oil that was prepared for the tabernacle and set aside to anoint the priests and the sacrificial uh, furnishings. It was a special uh, concoction, a special recipe that was not to be used to make uh, oil for any other purpose. That recipe is recorded in Exodus chapter 30, verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices, all of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassin, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil, and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer, And it shall be a holy anointing oil. And it was a lot of oil. It was about one and a half gallons and very aromatic. The Lord went on to instruct Moses to anoint all of the sacred instruments in the tabernacle as well as Aaron. And then he says this down in verse 29. He says, "You you shall consecrate them that they may be, excuse me, that they may be most holy Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of any ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. And so the, the oil was highly uh, fragrant, uh, with a very uh, a pleasing fragrance. It was unique. It was holy. But most important, it was, such, it, it, was, it was such an important symbol of holiness that anything that it touched among 
the things that it was meant to come in contact with was thereby deemed holy, and anything that it touched illegitimately was thereby fit only for destruction. The oil belonged to the Lord, and it had, it had just one purpose, to sanctify the instruments of worship and sacrifice. And so when our psalm compares unity to the oil running through Aaron's beard and down to the hem of his garment, the message is that unity has a sanctifying effect. And by implication for us, the church, the body of Christ, the the church is sanctified by our unity in a way that even goes beyond the mere symbolism of Aaron's oil. We are truly and literally sanctified and made holy through the cultivation of unity with one another. That's why Jesus' prayer for our sanctification in John 17 focused so much on unity. Because unity sanctifies the body in a profound and singular way. That's what verse 2 is all about. The special sanctifying influence of brotherly unity. When there is unity in the body, Christians speak God's word one to another. And we need that when we're uncertain or when we're discouraged. Or think about it, this, this reality... Two are better than one, says Solomon in Ecclesiastes, because of the heat and because of the help that they provide. Two are better than one to warm one another. One person's zeal helps another person's lukewarmness. One person's faith helps, another, uh, helps, helps against another's lack of hope or confidence or courage or boldness. One person's gentle correction helps to restore the one overtaken in a fault. But where there are divisions and discord, there is no love. There is no compassion. There's no humility. There's no gentleness. There's no long-suffering. And without those things, there's no watching over one another. We see someone struggling. We see someone discouraged. When there's no unity, we go, you know, good luck. Good luck with that, right? Or we make some assumption, right? We get caught back in that formulaic thinking and we, and we begin to make judgments like, well, they're struggling and they're doubting or they're going through this particular trial. You begin to prophesy about why they're going through those things, right? They must have done something wrong. God must be punishing them. That's not what believers do when they're unified. When, when, when the... When the church of Christ is experiencing unity, there's a sanctifying effect because there's more mercy, right? There's more truth. We're, we're, we're doing what Paul says there in Ephesians 4. We're speaking truth in love, right? We're reminding each other of those fundamental doctrines. This is one of the blessings of unity. It's sanctifying effect. Here, you can, you can write this down. If, if, you find, if you find a church where there's no unity, you'll find a group of people that are not being sanctified. They're not growing. Not growing in Christ-likeness, not growing in righteousness, not growing in holiness, not growing in, in faith, not growing in obedience. 
Now, verse 3 of our psalm, we find another illustration in our third reflection. And that's this, unity among God's people has a refreshing effect. Unity among God's people has a refreshing effect. He says, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. And so we have another picture painted for us, but one that's a little hard to unravel because Mount Hermon is, uh, as the crow flies, 120 miles north and east of Jerusalem. I mean, by, by foot, more like probably closer to 200 miles, which is nowhere close to Zion. And given the geography and the terrain of the area, there's no way that the dew of Hermon could literally run downhill and end up on the hills of Zion. It might flow all the way to maybe the Red, down to the Dead Sea, but to get to Jerusalem from Hermon, it would have to go thousands of feet downhill and then thousands of feet back up. So we have, we have Mount Hermon, it was a very large uh, mountain range with three peaks more than 9,000 feet high. Uh, Hermon ha- had uh, the heaviest dew and, and really the greatest amount of rainfall in that sector of the Middle East. Even today, I think over 60 inches of rain annually. So it's true that Hermon is a major source of water for the region around it as well as all the regions further south. Uh, a lot of that water runs down into the Sea of Galilee and from there past Jerusalem to the Dead Sea. But there's no way that the dew of Hermon could run down onto the mountains of Zion. But I think what the psalmist is describing here, you could call it a hypothetical scenario where heavy dew gathers on Zion and runs down. Zion doesn't generally get that kind of dew, but the psalmist is comparing brotherly unity to what it would be like if Zion got the same kind of heavy dew and rainfall that Mount Hermon gets. You might translate the Hebrew that way. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. That's precisely, in fact, how the NIV has it. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, refreshing the land, watering and enlivening the barren ground around Jerusalem, causing the whole land to be refreshed and and enlivened and invigorated. That, the psalmist says, is what unity among brethren is like. And there's a similarity between verse 3 and the illustration in verse 2. Both verses picture unity as flowing down, diffusing and dispersing blessings. In verse 2, it's the blessing of holiness and sanctification and a sweet-smelling fragrance. In verse 3, it's the blessing of refreshment and life-giving hydration. The whole idea of the psalm then is that unity is a uniquely rich blessing filled with an abundance of associated benefits. So what about unity? What about unity in your family? What about unity in your marriage? What about unity in the body at Faith Community Church? Do you see the blessing of it? What are you doing to dwell in unity? Some people think that they can create unity. Some people think that if they can just set up the right circumstances, if they can just bring the the right kinds of attitudes, if they can just say the right kind of words, that they can produce it. 
But you remember what I said last Sunday. This isn't a formula. We have to trust God for the outcome. Sometimes in this life, we won't see the kind or the amount of unity that we desire to see. In some cases, for obvious reasons. Sin creates division, 